I will be reading Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Great job, Micah. It is my absolute pleasure this morning to have the opportunity to introduce our speaker. Uh, Rick Ashley has been with us this weekend for our um, men's retreat. And we have been getting ready for uh, the battle of our lives that we know lays ahead of us. And I want to just encourage you, your men are coming back armed and deadly uh, as far as Satan's concerned. And uh, Rick has done a fan fantastic job of, um, of bringing the word from God to us in a way that uh, very few um, men that I know can. Rick and I have been friends for over 25 years. Uh, he was the most uh, requested speaker when we were hosting Mountain Family Fellowships uh, there in Rudoso. Uh, he came and I know he sp spoke at least three times, may have been four. This is his first time that I know of that he's been in Kerrville and uh, we're praying that it's not gonna be his last. He's been with the uh, Hills Church in uh, Fort Worth now for over 29 years. Uh, he's married to uh, Jamie and has three uh, beautiful kids, one of which just got engaged this weekend. Uh, and so we're, we're thrilled for uh, their family and for Morgan. And uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce to you my brother and my friend, Rick Ashley. Put a warm KCC welcome for him. Well, thank you, everybody. It's great to be here. I've had a great uh, weekend out at uh, HEB camp. Never been there before. Quite beautiful. And uh, your uh, husbands and sons made it even better. So thank you for sharing them with uh, me this weekend. Uh, I uh, don't drink coffee. Don't judge me. And so if I need a caffeine kick in the morning, when I was a younger preacher, I would get a Dr. Pepper. I lived in Abilene at the time, preaching for a church there. And I was driving to the office, and I just felt the need for a little kick. So I pulled into a convenience store to buy a Dr. Pepper. And this is embarrassing. I did not have enough money on me to buy a can of Dr. Pepper. I was a dime short. And it was particularly embarrassing because the lady behind the counter went to my church. So I said, I'm sorry, but the church building is right down the street. And I'm going to go down there and go in the office and get a dime for my secretary. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to buy this can of Dr. Pepper. And she said, don't worry, Rick. I'll just take it out in preaching. I said, my dear sister, I don't think I have any 10-cent sermons. She said, that's okay. I'll just come hear you twice. So, <laughs> so all you're going to get is a nickel's worth today. But it's going to be the strongest nickel I got. And I've really, really, really been looking forward to coming to be with you today because I feel like I know this church at some level, even though I have never not only been to this church, I've never been in Kerrville. And that's strange. I've lived in Texas all my life. My wife is from San Antonio. I've been all over Texas. And I have never been to Kerrville until last night. And by the way, it's pretty cool. Um, I uh, feel like I know you partly because I love your preacher. And I know you know this, but Jimmy Sportsman is a really, really good preacher. And I love being with him. Um, another reason uh, I love you is because, and I'll be just candid, uh, Greg Cummings is the reason I'm standing here right now. 
He was the very first youth minister my little church I grew up in ever had. He was just part-time going to preacher school. I preached my first sermon ever. I wanted to be a preacher all my life. And I preached against the sin of racism. And the elders met and decided they would never let me preach again. And Greg Cummings went to those elders and put his job on the line and said, either let him preach again or fire me. And they let me preach again. Now, I'm standing here right now because of Greg Cummings, your former preacher. I just want you to know that. And then finally, I feel a connection to you because uh, for the last 10 years of his life, I got to be Byron Nelson's preacher. And I love Byron Nelson. He was one of my heroes and favorite people. And he loved coming to Kerrville. And he loved worshiping at this church. And he loved coming back and telling me stories of how much he loved Kerrville and this church. Peggy, by the way, is doing great. She's there on the second row to my right every single Sunday. And she speaks highly of you, too. And so, for all of those reasons, thank you for letting me be here today. Now, um... As you would guess, I, I love the game of golf. It's something Jimmy and I share, and it's one of the reasons Byron Nelson was one of my heroes. And I got the thrill of a lifetime a few years ago. There is a professional golf tournament held every year in my city of Fort Worth called the Colonial. And if you know anything about professional golf, they on the Wednesday before the tournament starts, they have something called a Pro-Am. And this is where you play a ridiculous amount of money and you buy a spot to get to play the course with one of the professional golfers. Now, I've never done that because it's too expensive. But this particular year, I have a friend who's very high up in CBS Sports and he gave me his spot. He let me play in the Pro-Am in his place. And I can't tell you how excited I'm going to get to be behind the ropes, playing with a real professional golfer while all these people watch me play golf, that I was nervous because there is a part of my golf game I'm not very good at. If you know golf, it's called the sand or bunker shot. Now, I should be good at it because I have been there a thousand times, and it's not that I don't have the hand-eye coordination. It's a mental block. I expect I will hit it poorly, and I typically meet my expectations. So my prayer was, Lord, please don't let me hit the ball in the bunker. And the Lord was good and answered my prayer for six holes. Then on the seventh hole, I knocked my second shot right into this big, deep, greenside bunker. So deep that when I got down in it, all I could see was the top of the flagstick. And I just thought to myself, this is going to be such a fail. And not only is it a fail, it's a fail in front of a pro golfer with a couple of hundred people in the stands watching this epic fail. So I'm going to do my best one time. I'm going to fail. I'm going to pick up my ball, walk in shame to the next tee. So I swung, and the ball took off, and I heard a clank. And 200 people stood up and started cheering wildly. I had knocked the ball in the hole on the fly. I had never done that in my life. So in that moment, what did I do? Did I shrug my shoulders and smile sheepishly and say, that was so lucky. Of course not. I strutted up to that green. 
course it went in the hole. That's where I was aiming. Because everybody was clapping for me. And applause is so captivating. And then applause can take you captive. Because when you live for the acceptance of the crowd, you wind up in a very crowded prison. So uh, several years ago on Easter Sunday, I did a teaching from John chapter 11 where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you remember that story, Jesus said three things. He said, first, roll the stone away. That was a message of hope. And then he said, Lazarus, come out. A message of life. But that's not the last thing he said. Then he said, take the grave clothes off of him. And that's a message of freedom. And I asked my church this question. Is it possible that you have received divine salvation, supernatural life, resurrection life, but you're not enjoying it because you're still wrapped up in the clothes of your old life? You're still wearing the clothes of death even though you've got new supernatural life. And I passed out cards and I said, I'd like you to put on this card an area of your life where even though you're saved, you feel like you're in bondage. And I got thousands of cards. And I read every one of them. And I started to lump them into different kinds of, of groups of what is this particular bondage. And there were five areas in my church where people just like you said, I feel in bondage. Number five was attitudes of anger and bitterness. Card after card that said, I can't get over something that happened in my past. And it's robbing me of joy in my present. Number four was financial bondage. Debt and greed. Number three was sexual sin. Especially men and especially addiction to pornography. It is an epidemic in our churches. Number two, I thought would be number one, fear and worry. Card after card that said, I am so frightened about tomorrow, I can't live in joy today. But I didn't guess number one. The one card I got more than any other, it was said different ways, but basically it was this, I am so in bondage to my sense of inadequacy. I don't measure up. I live for other people to tell me I'm okay. I am so tired of being a people pleaser. No other command in the Bible is mentioned more than this one, don't be afraid. And no other fear in the Bible is mentioned more than this one, the fear of man. And when the Bible talks about the fear of man, it doesn't mean don't be afraid that people will physically hurt you. It means don't live your life in bondage to what they say and think about you. In Proverbs uh, chapter 29, verse 25, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. 
Uh, or another version, fearing people is a dangerous trap. Another, being afraid of people can get you into trouble. And finally, don't fall into the trap of being a coward. You cannot live free as long as other people are telling you who you will be. People pleasing is bondage. But who hasn't felt the weight of that chain? Because I'm going to contend that everybody struggles with approval addiction. We all have this overwhelming desire to be accepted by other people. Or to put it another way, we really like to be liked. Every day we check on our app, how many likes did I get today? And our desire to be liked is so strong, it can overwhelm our desire to be right. Now, I want to make sure you heard what I just said. Our desire to be liked is so strong, it will overwhelm our desire to be right. There was a very famous study of university some years ago. They took 10 students at a time. I'm talking first grader through senior in high school. And they put them in a room. And the test seemed so simple. They said, here's what's going to happen. A teacher's going to walk into the room and draw three lines. And one's going to be real long, and one's going to be medium length, and one's going to be real short. And you hold up your hand when the teacher points to the longest line. How simple is that? But here's what the 10th student didn't know. The other nine had been told, hold up your hand when the teacher points to the second longest line. Because what they were really studying was the reaction of that 10th student when faced with peer pressure. So the teacher would walk in and would point to the clearly longest line. And every time that 10th student would hold up their hand and then look around the room and realize I'm the only one with my hand up. 75% of the time, that student would put their hand back down. We're talking six-year-old all the way to 18. They would rather be clearly wrong if that's what it took to fit in with the crowd. That's not just a problem with young people. We're all approval addicts. And it comes at a high price. The pressure to conform our values. Our unwillingness to risk intimacy. Am I going to tell you who I really am if I think you might push me away? Which then causes us to lose our self-esteem. How can I feel real good about myself when I know I'm faking it most of the time, we lose our willpower to stand with the few against the many. Think about it. So many of our what was I thinking moments were driven and fueled by approval addiction. You knew that joke was racist. Why did you laugh at it? Because everybody else laughed and you wanted to fit in. You knew they were gossiping about her. Why did you listen? Because... Everybody else was giggling, and you wanted to be a part. 
I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with a guy who's destroying his family by his workaholism. But the problem isn't that he doesn't know he should be with his family. The problem is he is driven by a desire to have his peers in the marketplace tell him he's good and successful. And his addiction for approval is stronger than his love for his own kids. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a young woman who woke up in the bed of a guy she doesn't know or even like. But she was so desperate for any man to tell her, even if he was lying, that she was worth something. You need to know that before I talk about the dust in your eye, I got a plank in mine. I am a recovering approval addict. Most ministers are. The reason we got into ministry is because we like people. And we like to be liked by people. I've known this about me for a long time. Let me take you back to third grade. Now, I was never the coolest kid in school, okay? I was never the biggest or the fastest or the most popular. Uh, but I wasn't at the very bottom of the cool ladder. I was, I was the smart kid. And, and I don't even know if that was true, but that was the rep I had. I'm the smartest kid in class. And that doesn't put you at the top of the ladder of cool, but it doesn't put you at the bottom. And in third grade, the person at the bottom was named Connie. Connie was overweight, she was socially awkward, and she really struggled in school. I look back on it now, it's a long time ago. I'll bet she had learning disabilities. But we didn't know much about that back then. We just called Connie the dumb kid. So our teacher had this game at math time where she would hold up these cards and it would have math equations like 8 times 7 equals. And on the back would be the answer. And we played this game where you would stand next to someone's desk and they would stand up and she would hold up the card. Whoever got the answer first got to go to the next desk. And whoever got all the way around the room back to their desk would get a donut. I usually got the donut. I was the smart kid. So this day, the teacher said, Rick, we'll start with you. Pick someone to start the game. And I looked around the room. And all the cool kids whose approval I desperately wanted all gave me the same look. Don't pick me. What am I going to do? And then suddenly I knew what I could do. I knew there was one person I could pick. And nobody would mind. So I said, I picked Connie. And the whole class laughed. Because they knew she had no chance, and she didn't. So she stood up by her desk. I stood next to her. The teacher held the card up. I had the answer before she had finished reading the question. And everybody laughed again. And Connie sat down. And then I looked into her face. Now, this is over 50 years ago. I still can see her face. And her eyes did not say, I hate you. They said, 
Why did you hurt me? I thought you were one of the nice boys. And in that moment, even though I was just eight years old, I learned something about me. I have such a strong desire to be liked. I can become somebody I don't even like. You see, I don't think most of us wake up in the morning wanting to be wicked. I think we wake up in the morning afraid we'll be wimpy. And where courage is absent, bondage is always present. Because here's the thing. Nobody wins the people-pleasing race. You are never going to find happiness trying to keep everybody in your life happy. If you're running the people-pleasing race, all you're doing is you're running circles inside of a prison. And you can't win this race and you can't escape it because it has no finish line. Here's why. The world doesn't applaud grace. The world applauds performance. Am I not right about that? Who's on the cover of the magazine? The world wants to know, did you win the most? Did you score the most? Do they call you the prettiest? Do you get the most likes? That's what they applaud. So you're running this race inside this prison, and I don't care how pretty or smart or rich you are, there is somebody behind you that is going to pass you someday. I remember reading J.R. Vassar, who was a missionary in the southeast. He said they went to this uh, famous temple where this big, huge Buddha was that all these people would pilgrimage to go see. And he said it was sad to see these incredibly poor people giving the very last of their money to this statue. And then you go behind it, and there's scaffolding because the Buddha is breaking down, and they're having to repair it. And he said how sad to see terribly broken people praying to a broken Buddha who has to get fixed and he says, but are we any different? Broken people asking other broken people to help us feel good about ourselves. It's just not worth it to enter a race for other people to determine your worth. It's bondage. And it leads to significant spiritual damage. Because think about it. Isn't it true in your Bible? That so many of the people that most honored God had to go against the crowd. Paul put it like this in Galatians 1.10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Let me read that verse one more time. It's Galatians 1.10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people. But of God, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Those are the words of a free man. He spent a lot of time in jail, but he was a free man because he lived his life for an audience of one. Because after all, there's only one person whose measure of your value brings true freedom. And some of us are in a race to try to win something we already have. So let me share with you in the next two, three minutes, the single most important thing the Lord's ever taught me. Not just for my ministry, but I'm just talking about for my personal well-being and joy. You see, most of us spend our life living it for a blessing. What if we learned 
to live from a blessing. What if we believe that somebody has already proved how much you are worth? What if my worth was conferred on me before my performance or my appearance was ever even considered? Because that's what the scripture says, Ephesians 1 4. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind and he settled on us as the focus of his love. See, what the scripture is saying is God has already conferred on you worth and value. What if I could live out of that blessing instead of constantly living for your blessing? It would change everything. When you live in bondage to what other people think, you forfeit the blessing of knowing what God thinks. But here's the thing. Other people are not the experts on what you're worth. Only God is. Now, to illustrate that, I brought a prop all the way from Fort Worth. I'd like you to meet Tim. Tim has never been to Kerrville, by the way. Tim is my teddy bear. He has been my teddy bear since I can remember. Since before I could walk and talk, Tim has been my friend. I don't know why I named him Tim. I have no clue. But he's just been Tim ever since. And he is one ugly bear. I'm telling you, you could look up close, you could see his nose is bent, his eyes don't work on the back, all his stuffings come out. My mom has stitched him up several times, but Tim is my bear. So it's my senior year of high school. My parents were going to move to another town, so they decided to have a garage sale. They set up a bunch of long tables in the backyard. I come home from school, and there on a table was Tim with a post-it note, 25 cents. I picked Tim up. And I found my mother, and for the first time in my life, I called her to public repentance. And I made it clear that Tim was never to be sold to anybody at any time for any price because Tim's worth doesn't depend on what you think he is. His worth comes from the one who owns him. And who will always love him. And so does yours. God doesn't just proclaim your worth. God proved it. The scripture says in Romans 5. God showed his great love for us. By sending Christ to die for us. When we were still sinners. Now listen. Right now. I mean right now. You're determining your value based on how you see yourself in the eyes of others or how you see yourself in the eyes of God. We get up in the morning, you go to school, you go to work, you go wherever you go. You're going to live tomorrow either from your blessing that you are the beloved of God or you're going to live tomorrow for a blessing, hoping desperately that other people will tell you that you matter. And when you become convinced that you matter to God, it's not going to matter what other people think. The love of God will crowd out the need to be applauded by the crowd. And when you know 
who you are. You also know who you don't have to be. No matter how much pressure there is out there to be it. You can leave the prison of other people's expectations. And it is so liberating to be so conscious of God's approval that nobody else can tell you how to live or who to love. Because here's the deal. Only people that are truly freed by love are the people that can love anybody. See, I'm going to give you a hint. There's a final coming. And there's going to be two big questions. So get ready. Did you love God? And did you love people? You cannot be a lover and a pleaser. Because applause is always conditional. Always. Applause is never based on grace. But when you leave the prison of people pleasing, you are free to give unearned and undeserved and unconditional love. Because here's the thing. You're not loving people so they will love you back. You're not loving people to get their approval. You're loving people because you've gotten God's approval. Isn't that what the scripture says? We love because he first loved us. And you know who taught me this more than anyone? Jesus. You know why Jesus could love Everybody. It's because he didn't care what anybody thought. But Jesus, he's a tax collector. You can't hang out with him. That's bad PR. But Jesus, she she lives on the streets and she works on the streets. It is bad for your image. He didn't care. He didn't care what anybody thought. He was so sure of who he was and of his love from the Father. He could love everybody. Because he didn't need anybody's approval. To tell him who he was and what he was about and what he would live for. And here's the thing. You can be that free. So it's in high school now. For reasons I don't have time to go into, I had to start school early. Which meant I was always the youngest in my class. So my end of freshman year of high school, some of my classmates are getting their driver's license. By the end of my sophomore year, all of my classmates have turned 16 and gotten their license. I'm starting my junior year of high school. I'm not 16 yet. I I still don't have a driver's license. That does not put you up high on the cool ladder. But at least I wasn't at the bottom. That was for Daryl. Daryl was the Connie of my high school. He was socially awkward. He he was kind of nerdy, I'll admit it. He literally had a pocket protector with pins in it. He literally had tape to keep his glasses together. And it was never off limits to pick on Daryl. And they did. I want you to imagine getting on the bus every day to go to school 
And before you even get to school, your self-esteem has been shattered. That was Daryl every day. See, what most of the students didn't know, because Daryl lived literally just right up the street a few houses from me. Daryl's father was an alcoholic and a very angry man. More than once I would walk by his house and I would hear Daryl's father drunk, screaming at him. And that's probably not all. The abuse he got at home was probably worse than the abuse he got at school. Well, anyway, finally, sometime during my junior year, I turned 16. And I had saved $600 and I bought an old Chevy because I am going to start to drive to school. I cannot wait. Because let's face it, when you get a car, you go up a little bit higher on the cool ladder. And I have been in the middle or at the bottom half of the cool ladder for a long time, and I am waiting. I am finally going to get up just a little bit higher. And we're having supper that night, and there's a knock on the door, and I go to the door. It was Daryl. Rick, is that your car? Yeah, that's my car. Are you going to take it to school tomorrow? Yeah, I'm going to take it to school tomorrow. Can I have a ride? Now, I'm not proud of this, but you already know immediately what went into my head. Give Daryl a ride? The most picked on, laughed at kid in school? This is my chance to finally be more cool, not less cool. Then I looked into his eyes. Daryl wasn't asking me for a ride. He was asking me for a rescue. Sure, Daryl, I'll give you a ride. And I did. Every day for the rest of the school year, I took my friend Daryl to school. It did not make me more cool. But I look back now, and I'm really glad Daryl and I became friends. Later that year, it's in the summer, I'm in the backyard, I hear this awful sound of something chugging up the alley, and an old jalopy stops, and Daryl gets out. Rick, I got a car. And I wanted you to be the first person to see it. I didn't, I didn't know anything back then about the Holy Spirit. All I can tell you is that for the first time in my life, I felt tangible smile of God. Can you hear it? That's heaven. Heaven is clapping for you. God is 
crazy about you? And how might it change the way we lived and loved tomorrow? If we could believe that. Let me pray for you. So, Father, thank you for this time to be here. I pray my words have honored you and lifted up Jesus. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit now will penetrate hearts, and burn into hearts the truth that we are loved and that we are to be ambassadors of love. Help us to live tomorrow out of our blessing. For the sake of the world and because Jesus is worth it. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand up. I believe there are going to be people uh, around this room that would love to pray with you today, minister to you that way. And we would love to offer the gift of baptism for all that are ready to confess their allegiance to Jesus while we worship.